Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room, so Rav, why don't you tell us all about it? Of course. I really enjoy everyone coming to join us in the chat room. We have a wonderful group of people. Um, we have some great conversation, and there's always someone there that can give you that little piece of advice that you need for right now. So do come join us. That is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Come and say hello. All right. The birthday of this great nation is just a couple of days away. On Friday of this week, we will celebrate another birthday of the United States of America. So it's apropos that today's spotlight would turn our attention to freedom. For many people, the most important freedom provided by our Constitution simply enables them to practice their form of religion or spirituality as they wish. Unfortunately, this right is normally viewed in what I think of as a unidirectional manner, with little thought given to any obligations or debts that arise as a result of the process. On July 4th of this year, the good old USA will be 238 years young. Now think about that. In terms of the population, our beloved nation is really just a few generations old. Yet in just a short time, the United States of America has become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. Now, some would debate that today, arguing that the nation is in decline. Could that be? A free nation rose up in the world 238 years ago and took its place among nations, not just as the most politically influential nation of our time, but also as a beacon of freedom for all throughout the world. As such, America became the great melting pot, providing the standard for the world as it demonstrated the power behind liberty and justice for all. If our nation is in decline, it is most certainly due to the sacrificing of personal freedoms. History informs us over and over again that great nations decline whenever their power becomes so centralized that individual liberties and personal freedoms are abridged or abrogated altogether. According to a recent study titled Testing Theories of American Politics, Elites, Interest Groups, and Average Citizens, a study conducted by Martin Gillens of Princeton and Benjamin Page of Northwestern University, we are government by the people and for the people no longer. Quoting their findings, Despite the seemingly strong empirical support in previous studies for theories of majoritarian democracy, our analysis suggests that majorities of the American public actually have little influence over the policies our government adopts. Americans do enjoy many features central to democratic governments, such as regular elections, freedom of speech and association, and a widespread, if still contested, franchise. But we believe that if policymaking is dominated by powerful business organizations and a small number of affluent Americans, then America's claim to being a democratic society are seriously threatened. Close quote. 
I have spoken many times about soundbite reasoning. As we view another election cycle approaching, the vitriol has already begun again in earnest. I have seen several posts and comments of late that a good old fact check would just shoot full of holes. Unfortunately, many members of the general public rarely take the time to check the facts for themselves, instead preferring to simply intake the sound bites and have the most appeal. As such, the same old sound bites get repeated over and over again as though you can make them true by repetition, and they continue to suck people in. The result is people today are passionate about many things on both sides of every argument. In order to make this passion worthwhile, however, I would encourage all of you to be careful. Fact check. Evaluate the agenda of the folks pushing the idea, and so forth. For example, it is fair to expect that oil companies have an interest in fracking and to weigh their arguments accordingly. This sort of bias is obvious. On the other hand, not all biases are so clear. Be passionate, but first make certain the cause really is one that you want to support. In researching and writing my newest book, We the Sheeple, I found many hidden agendas. Invariably, these agendas are deliberately designed to alter our values, divide our loyalties, and in many other ways, march us in lockstep, all so that we will happily serve the purposes of a few, the so-called elite. For me, whenever the discussion would disenfranchise a freedom, I am immediately suspicious of the motives. For example, these days there are many compelling sound bites regarding guns. However, when I checked the hard data, I found that gun violence is down in America and that law enforcement opposes gun laws that would deprive us of our freedom as spelled out in the Second Amendment. When someone posted on Facebook about open carry laws and implied that violent crimes are being carried out by those who practice this right, I checked the facts. It's not the lawfully licensed people who break the laws. It's not the folks insisting on their constitutional rights who are the threat to this country. Rather, it's the folks who would infringe upon those rights who would make their own laws and ignore the freedoms guaranteed in our Constitution and repeatedly upheld by the Supreme Court. No, it's those people who are the real threat to our nation. Now, that's not to say that everyone, regardless of who they are or what they have done, their age or mental soundness, should have a gun or any weapon for that matter. My experience in law enforcement knows much better than that. Common sense knows much better than that. But when we go overboard with outrage at gun owners because someone perpetrates a heinous act with a gun, we've lost sight of the real issue. If weapons were the problem, then perhaps we should also outlaw kitchen knives as well. Why? Well, just by way of example, in 2001, at 10.15 that morning, a 37-year-old former janitor entered a school in Japan armed with a kitchen knife and began stabbing numerous schoolchildren. And teachers. He killed eight children, mostly between the ages of seven and eight, and seriously wounded 13 other children and two teachers. In March of this year, a story in the Mail Online read, quote, Two of the knife-wielding attackers who killed 29 people 
and injured 143 in a frenzied attack at a Chinese railway station were women, according to state TV. The headline tells it all. Quote, Chinese authorities say two women were part of knife-wielding terror gang, which left at least 33 dead and 143 wounded after attacking a train station in China. Close quote. In April of this year, a 16-year-old boy stabbed one adult and 21 students in a Pennsylvania high school. Again, the weapon was a kitchen knife. After being tackled and subdued by a vice principal, the teenager had this to say, I have more people to kill. CNN reported the teenager stands accused of rampaging through the halls of Franklin Regional Senior High School early on the morning of April 9 using a pair of 8-inch kitchen knives to slash those in his path, close quote. The fact is, if you Google this expression, kitchen knife kills, you will discover that the pages go on and on and on with stories of knives used as deadly weapons. So again, do we outlaw kitchen knives? A recent study published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy concluded that there is a negative correlation. Let me repeat that. A negative correlation between gun ownership and violent crime. Indeed, quoting the study, quote, Nations with stringent anti-gun laws generally have substantially higher murder rates than those that do not. Close quote. I introduced this discussion with the notion that most view freedom as a unidirectional matter, what they get. With regards to religion, freedom ensures the right to our personal pursuit of spirituality according to our means and conscience. For me, it should be obvious that freedom is not a one-way street. No, rather it is very much a two-way adventure. For a spiritual life requires that we consider the freedom of all to live their lives as free people. Don't get me wrong. We can find all sorts of secular reasons to promote reasons, so it's not an exclusive duty relegated to the spiritually minded, but for the person to assert their spiritual orientation and ignore the rights of another, the suffering, or the ill-dignified ways in which so many are treated, well, that's just simply hypocritical. When we accept a freedom that we have not earned, and the rights endowed by our Creator mean little to the fundamentalist, and others around the world, then we owe a debt to those who made the freedom possible and an obligation to pay it forward. I recently had reason to examine the world religions and their teachings regarding the Golden Rule. In literally every single extant religion, I found multiple verses in their sacred texts supporting the idea that it is our obligation, indeed our spiritual duty, to care for our fellow human beings. I'm sure that if we conducted a survey of the human inhabitants of this planet, you would discover that the vast majority desire freedom more than anything else. Number one on the happiness list is freedom. As Stuart Mill so eloquently put it, quote, the only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to obtain it. Whatever crushes individuality is despotism, by whatever name it may be called, and whether it professes to be enforcing the will of God or the injunctions of men. 
On this, the 238th birthday of America, let us once again remember the importance of freedom. Let us always remember this admonition by Milligan. Quote, The person who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. Close quote. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, this is another really big issue. You know, freedom to me, I think freedom for everyone around the world is the most important thing. Um, You know, that's something I focus on a lot. The whole issue with guns, you know, the fact is guns don't kill people. People using the guns kill people. So it's the mentality behind the people and there is so much that has changed in society the amount of violence in movies i mean you cannot turn the tv on after six o'clock in the evening and not encounter sex or violence and to say that that doesn't influence people you know that's putting your head in the sand that is so convenient so there's a whole package involved here you cannot just you know go to the guns it's a big question and until we start asking the big the so we start looking at the whole issue, we'll never find the solution to it. The answer is in education. You're absolutely right and correct. Currently, we are practicing our children in how to be killers, whether it's with knives or with guns. And so the real issue isn't about our freedoms, as spelled out in the amendment. It's perhaps about uh, the amount of responsibility we're willing to take to see that there is an ethical, moral system that, families impose that children are raised with that yep. you know people come to respect Definitely. all right every week i read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making the show successful last week our show featured dr norm Sheely, and we discussed his years of research in his latest book living bliss major discoveries along the holistic path Thank you for the show with Dr. Sheely, Beth wrote. I really enjoyed the discussion. Yana wrote, Eldon, that was, uh, that was super fantastic radio. I am so grateful for people like you. I only listened to the first hour. Is there a place I could listen to the replay? Thanks so much again. Well, you certainly can, Yana. We post all of our shows in our archives, and there is no charge or fee necessary to access those archives. Our show is syndicated and airs on several networks, so each week's show isn't available in the archives until the following week. But if you're impatient, please check our show schedule. You'll see many alternate times and days every week that you can access rebroadcasts to the live show. Adelaide wrote, I'm so hooked on Eldon Taylor's YouTube channel. I listen to every new episode, so enlightening and breaking down many limiting beliefs. Thanks, Eldon. Please continue this great work. Well, thank you, Adelaide, and how timely. Another great source for our shows, and much more, is our Progressive Awareness YouTube channel. Now, that one you don't find under Provocative Enlightenment. It's under Progressive Awareness. You know, we wake up one person at a time, I believe. So check it out, and be sure to subscribe while you're there. James wrote, I love your show, and your Intertalk CDs are invaluable. I am so very glad I found you. Krista wrote, I love these intertalk programs and I use them for my foster kiddos to help them deal with what life has handed them. And Julie wrote, I watched your interview with Lisa Gar on Gaim TV. I applaud your accomplishment for all mankind. Well, thank you, Julie. I'm sincerely honored by your words. For all of you, that interview is posted at Gaim TV 
Uh, just check out Gaim Inspirations with Lisa Gar for more information. That Gaim is spelled G-A-I-A-M. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, and it's a very special show at that. Today, for the first time since 1931, the world will be blessed with the mellifluous sounds of waterless crystal music glasses. While I was thinking about America's 238th birthday, I naturally remembered all those stories of the Wild West. Well, in the studio with me today is the world's fastest gun, Mr. Bruce Tweedy. Bruce is himself a real historian of the Old West, a Hollywood performer, and a master of the symphony-rated waterless crystal music glasses. And Bruce and his lovely wife, Sandra, will perform their music live during the show. But first, let me tell you a little more about our guests. I met Bruce Tweedy when I went looking for the best possible person in my area for some classic car restoration. A friend of both of ours introduced us, and I was taken back by the talent I discovered in this man. I mean, unbelievable talent, unbelievable history. Not only did he turn out to be probably the best in the country, uh, by way of automobile restoration, whether it's the paint and body work or it's the engine work, but much, much more. After becoming acquainted with Bruce, I asked him what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. His answer, my music. As I learned more, and experienced his work, it became obvious to me this man's talent needs to be shared. He is a genuine piece of history, so I asked Bruce and his lovely wife Sandy to join me on the show today, and here they are. So on that, let's get them both in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Bruce and Sandy Tweedy. Well, yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. It's indeed our pleasure. I'm excited about it. You too, aren't you, Rav? Yes, I am. This is going to be a magical show. All right. Well, uh, let's start with you, Bruce. I want everyone out there to know how surprised I was to find that the fellow who is so great at restoring classic cars was also the Wild West fast draw expert. Uh, tell our audience, how did you become involved in fast draw? Well, I became involved actually through the Stagecoach Fast Draw Club, which was an offshoot of the Rawhiders back in Hollywood. And uh, the Rawhiders became the World Fast Draw Association. And our fast draw club bought their timer for timing the fast draw. A light would come on, they'd draw, they fire, and the clock would record their time. That timer had been well worn out by the rawhiders, and so my sister, who was a member of the group, asked my dad, which was an avionics tech over at Northwest Airlines, if my dad would build a new timer for the club. Well, my dad agreed to build the timer if the club would buy the parts, which the club did, of course. Well, in building the timer, my dad needed someone to test the timer. Well, my sister, of course, was the obvious choice, but she was more busy chasing the members of the Stagecoach Fast Rock Club than she was <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually helping my dad build the clock. So 
I was it. I was the one that got to test the clock to see if it actually worked. And uh, at the age of 14, I found out I was pretty good. So my dad said, well, let's join the club under the family membership, and I would be allowed to shoot and compete. So the next year, at the age of 15, not only did I win the competition, I tied the world time, and I became Minnesota's fastest draw. Um, uh, I didn't know that I actually tied the world time at the uh, age of 15, but uh, we were just basically doing that as fun. It was a fun thing to do. And the stagecoach was a very dynamic place to be. It was a uh, restaurant. It was a bar. It had all kinds of Nickelodeons and Wurlitzer and uh, all sorts of Old West memorabilia, the big horseshoe bar. Everything was just Old West. And, you know, even when you walked on the boardwalk, you know, you could hear your feet go clunk, 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 you know, and it just had that good feel to it. Well, added to that was a full-on Bella Union Opera House. And that was run by the University of Minnesota. That was really unique in the fact that we have a very dynamic uh, 1890s-style melodrama going on uh, at least twice a week. Now, the university students at the University of Minnesota needed to put in about four months' worth of time in order to um, qualify for their master's. So it was very dynamic. Well, in between the breaks uh, from the uh, opera house there, we would do our Western fast draw. We would do the Western melodramas out in the streets. And then, of course, on weekends, we'd have full-on all-day melodramas and fast draw shooting demonstrations. And then, of course, along with that, we'd go out and do private parties. We would do um, shopping centers uh, for advertising. Uh, a lot of our work was done in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, but we traveled wherever uh, someone would want us. But we had uh, regular fast draw competitions. We had members in the you know, hundreds, and uh, it was a very large group. It was very dynamic and very fun, and we were all basically interested in the history part of it. So... Tell, tell me something, Bruce. I, I understand that there's two of you that actually vie for this, for the world championship. You you tied somebody else. Who is that somebody else that you tied? Well, yes, we have a very, uh, he has recently passed away this year. Uh, however, Bob Munden, which was a, a very fine shooter, and I had a lot of respect for Bob. Bob took the World Fast Draw Association's Fast Draw title with the single action firearm similar to what I use, although he was modified. Uh, and that's, we broke away from the World Fast Draw Association about that same time that Bob Munden took his title. We, we moved away from primarily because of the historical part. We were demonstrating that you could be fast. Those old cowboys and gunslingers were very fast. Uh, the equipment that we had was unmodified. The World Fast Draw Association went with titanium frames, aluminum barrels, breakaway holsters, any any form uh, of rigging, and any single action firearm. I see. So some of the stuff that you see in TV where the guy's quick drawing out of a breakaway holster, they, they didn't really do that. Well, I'm sure that the Old West characters were, you know, they were, were quite inventive, just as we are today. However, uh, generally, no. The average Old West character um, 
probably had his gun rusted tight to his holster. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, I want to flesh out more of the history because, you know, I mean, that's that's what we're talking about this for. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into your music, but we've got a hard break coming up here. So we'll do that when we come back. We're speaking with Bruce and Sandy Tweedy about the history of the Wild West shootout. And, and you don't want to miss this part, the revival of Armonica Sound. You can learn more about them and their work by visiting brucetweedy.com. That's B-R-U-C-E-T-W-E-E-D-Y.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Thank you. 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Bruce and Sandy Tweedy about the history of the Wild West Shootout and the revival of the harmonica sound. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. This often provides some interesting insight into our guest. Now, we just played Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. Why is this song important to you, Bruce? And how does it tell us about who you are? Well, it, it actually says quite a bit in that song. Uh, the lyrics are only around 3,000 or so years old. They're found right in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. So, uh, outside of the last line... I didn't know that. Absolutely. It's a good Bible lesson right there. There's a season for everything. And that's a, lot, a lot of my life has been like that. You know, I have a season. I had a season of childhood. I had a season of being a young adult. I had a season of learning. I had a season of doing. You know, uh, we have to wait uh, for the season to come around. If we try to push the season before it's time, we end up in trouble. So um, it just told me to have a little patience and wait and plan because the season will come. And I was a young boy at that time, actually. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And it kind of signals an awakening. And the awakening was that we do have these seasons of time in our lives. And not only that, um, it was good music. The uh, song, I think, hit number one and stayed there for about eight months. That's a great song. I love and it. I always have. It was wonderful to, you know, because at, at that time they were saying that the... Um, Rock and roll was the, the devil's music. There was a lot of that going around. So I uh, listened to Turn, 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 and I said, well, I don't think that's the devil's music right there. I said, that sounds like really good rock and roll music to me. And uh, then I found out it was from Ecclesiastes, and I thought, well, what a good use for rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Listen, before the break, we were attempting or beginning to flesh out the the history of gunfighting in the West, you know. Mm. Um, you know, I think we've, you know, anybody that uh, grew up on Westerns like I did, or you probably did, you know, we've mm. seen all of the gunfights at OK Corral and, mm -hmm. you know. Um, did it really happen that way? Did two folks walk out in the middle of the street at sundown, wait for that clock to go boom and then draw? Well, we have three documented uh, incidences like that. Of course, I was with the legends of the Old West, and we did quite a bit of research to find the Hollywood version. The only version that we found that would actually mimic the uh, Hollywood version would be Wild Bill Hickok's shootout with his financier. Wild Bill Hickok had won a game of poker, but he had to put his watch in the pot in order to match the uh, the bet. So when Wild Bill won the bet, his financier took the watch 
as guaranteement for payment of the money that he had loaned Wild Bill Hickok. And Wild Bill Hickok said to the financier, if I happen to see you wearing that watch in public, I will shoot you on sight. Well, of course, the financier just had to wear that watch in public, so he stepped out. He was Wild Bill was told by a young boy that uh, the financier was we wearing his watch. Wild Bill stepped out of the saloon, saw his financier wearing the watch from about 75 yards across the city park. He took out his 36 caliber Navy and shot him once right through the heart. <laughs> so he just shot him. He just shot him. There was no fast draw. There was no fast draw involved. Then why didn't he go to jail? Because in that period of time, if someone were to disgrace you or you would have an issue with someone, you could go to them publicly and say, if I see you in town uh, such and such a time, I will shoot you on sight. And from there on, the gunfight is on. It doesn't make any difference who draws first. You had legal warning. Are you serious? I mean, you legally could just say, okay, I don't like you, dude, and uh, if I see you on the street again, I am blowing you away. Absolutely. And that was, that was legal. That was legal, yes, indeed. No wonder they took your guns away in Dodge City. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. You know, um, the gunfights are quite a bit different than uh, what we think. Um, you, when you get involved with gunplay, you better know what you're doing. Because if you're going to carry a firearm or if you're going to use a firearm around the house, you have better made the decision of what you're going to do prior to owning that firearm. Because I can guarantee you that if you give me the courtesy of the first draw, I will tell the story. Yeah, well, okay. I, I'm not drawing against you. It's that simple. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, though. Now, I, I've seen uh, photographs of you dropping a, what appears to be a paper cup, even mm -hmm. like a styrofoam cup. True. You're dropping a, a, a paper cup out of your right hand, mm -hmm. drawing then with that right hand, yes. and shooting that paper cup before it hits the ground. It's a demonstration. Uh, our group with the traditional fast draw, you need to restrict the gun hand in showing any shooting demonstrations. So I would have a cup on my gun hand, uh, either at waist high, shoulder high, I'd put it, one on my elbow, showing that you have to cross the body to get to the gun and draw and fire. I'd have one on my gun itself so that you had to start from at holster level and then pull the gun and draw and fire. I think that, that shot's on the on the website. The um, purpose there was to show that you could use this equipment very effectively and in a very short time be fast and be accurate. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you drew a 357 Magnum. Yeah, modern caliber, but it was the 1873 patent. Okay, so it was it was for all intent and purposes the same kind of weight and and size of weapon that would have been used in, in the Wild West. Well, the firearm is uh, one of the heaviest a Colt ever produced. The 357 Magnum is built on the 45 frame, so you've got all that extra metal of the small bore. Do you ever think about going to a lighter gun just to see if you couldn't click off the tie? Yes, I did. However, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. In, when that gun was available for me to purchase, there were only two in the Minneapolis area, and unfortunately, they were both 357 Magnums. Oh. <laughs> I had completely destroyed my Dakota 45. I was in a gunfight uh, at Robbinsdale um, Shopping Center, and I'm trying to get this old Dakota 45 to fire, and I can't get it to go, and I've got 
the guy coming up with a double barrel shotgun that's supposed to kill me, and I, I'm supposed to get one shot at him so I can wound him in the leg. Well, I finally got that Dakota to fire, but that was the last shot that Dakota ever fired. I completely wore that gun out. I cracked the cylinder. I broke the frame. The uh, trigger didn't work. You know, it, it was done. It was done. So done I needed a new firearm. So you really did. Okay. Now, when I first met you, you were the spitting image of the pictures of Bill Cody. I mean, right down to the hair. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you've cut your hair now as you do your music, but uh, right down to the hair. Anyone could get out of, you know, we'll get on Google mm-hmm. and Google Buffalo Bill or Bill Cody, and there is a photograph of you standing there. All right. Mm-hmm. So I know you got involved in Hollywood, too. I mean, you're the fast draw guy. You've got the looks, you know, and everything else. going. When we see these movies... We see these tough guys, you know, True Grit, the John Waynes of the world, and so forth. One of the things that I know that because of people that I met is so few of those Hollywood folks playing the tough gunslinger are really at all like that. Mm-hmm. Did you meet any that were indeed, you know, the real fiber? I mean, I remember my dad telling me about Robert Mitchum and, and, and the brawl he got into in California when my dad was stationed during the war at Saint or- at, uh, at Fort Ord and telling me that, you know, Robert Mitchum was a real guy, you know, mm-hmm. a real two-fisted guy. And when he played these tough roles in the movies, he was really that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, have you met somebody in, in Hollywood that was really that kind of guy? Most of the people I have met in Hollywood, of course, are actors. They're from, yeah. from, the, from the liberal scene, of course, and very nice. And I've had wonderful uh, relationships with the people I have worked with. I haven't found what the scandal rags say uh, to be true. So every, every, every place I've been, everything that I've done in that regard has been just wonderful. Um, as far as tough guys go, well, would you think that Jerry Lewis is one of the fastest guns in the West also? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> he, he was. He was. Absolutely. So was Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, and uh, Lee Marvin. You know, there's a man that went through the landing at Iwo Jima, you know, credited for saving one of his buddy's lives. Yeah. You know, he was a real tough guy. Yeah, he is what my dad talked about, too. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, so. He was a fast draw. He was a fast draw. Cat Blue, wasn't that his famous Western movie where he was drunk no, on the no, horse no. riding backwards all the time? I love the fact that the horse was drunk, too, leaning yeah. against the building. That was a wonderful show. Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, What's your favorite Western? I have to ask you that before we get off this subject. Well, you know, I like the historical accuracy. And, uh, you know, that movie Tombstone was very nice. Uh, very nicely done. Uh, Kevin Costner's Wider was very nicely done. Tombstone was uh, historically as accurate as we can get. Um, the Old West has been known as history is more of a lie agreed upon than anything else. So it's told by the last man standing, so to speak, and uh, as long as they all agreed, I guess that's the way it happened. Mm. So it's hard to find Old West history that's accurate. Um, but the clothing, the horses, the saddles, uh, all of that, uh, the director kept a very, very... Uh, close watch on what was coming into that studio and shooting the scenes and so forth to make sure that they were all accurate. Uh, except for the three shots that Doc Holliday got out of the shotgun, I think it was pretty pretty accurate. Mm. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. The, the double barrel shotgun shooting three shots, that just doesn't normally happen in life. Doesn't work out that way, no. <laughs> Especially not without loading. Huh? No. Uh, and of course, John Wayne's 
45 shot revolver. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't found one of those yet. No. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this, Bruce. Um, what what was the message that you had in mind when you were doing this? I mean, it, um, we opened. I know you heard the setup piece. And it happens mm-hmm. to be about freedom and uh, particularly our constitutional rights. The Second Amendment was something that that I included in that discussion. Very heavy part of that. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was raised with a cap gun. You know, mm-hmm. we could go to school with our twenty twos, mm-hmm. and and the coach would teach us how to shoot. And mm-hmm. and times have changed; they've really changed. They really have. What, I, bu- I what? bought my first shotgun from my uh, civics teacher, and I actually went to my classroom to get it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there there you go. So you know, it, it, when you were doing this, was it about the fun of playing with guns? Was it? Uh, I mean, what was did you have a bigger message, or was it just, you know, opportunity met you, and you had talent, and you found yourself slipping into a role? Was there some abiding message? I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, I guess as far as the opportunity goes, yes, it just kind of fell on my lap. It was just something that happened. Uh, I happened to have some very dynamic people in my life that were involved in some very fun things to do. It was a, a real break from what they actually did in real life. So that part of it was fun. But my mentor, uh, I'm going to say his name, Lenny Berkey, because he deserves to be recognized, uh, always wanted the historical part. He said, we're representing history, and uh, we're, running into, we're coming into a time when the whole world uh, has a relative that immigrated to the United States of America, and uh, we now are able to uh, have the political, the financial, and the will to for those relatives to come to the U.S. and see our historical assets. And so they want to see where uh, everybody migrated to. So, yes, we could go with the, the modern and, and the fun part of it, but someone's going to have to represent the history. And that's where I took to heart the uh, historical fact. Instead of going for the Guinness Book of World Records, I went for the historical aspect of everything. What would you say is the message to young people today, young or old alike, about uh, the importance of weapons in our society? Well, I don't know. You know, the weapons in our society, under English law, all free men were allowed to uh, possess arms. But we need to educate just as a reality of anything else, you know, with the sex education, the education of moralities, uh, what's proper, you know, politeness, uh, the importance of community. We happen to have firearms in our life. That's a reality. We need to teach the responsibility. And in every gun show that I did, I always said that this is a very serious business when it comes down to the reenactments. That you might not look uh, and see security and safety measures. Says, but they're there. We've built them into the play. We always had a range officer. And if that range officer called no shot, regardless of what we're doing, everybody put their guns down because for whatever reason, that range officer saw uh, a problem. And we would stop the play right in its tracks until that problem was resolved. Uh, we, so we always taught safety. We always demonstrated how lethal blanks can be. Uh, I would set up a tin can and 
shoot at that tin can with just a standard Hollywood blank, and it would rip a tin can to shreds. Even right. the old metal tin cans would rip to shreds. Really? And besides that, you'd have to walk about 20 yards in order to pick it up. And I know blanks have got incredible power, but the old metal tin cans, and you, how close were you when you did that? We were basically, um, you know, point-blank range. Point-blank. Okay. So one of the things that I like right now that's popular is ride and shoot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you have an obstacle course. You've probably seen it. You're on your horse. You're oh, full yes. out. It's a time to bed like a barrel racing or well, can chasing. A good friend of mine, Reggie Byram, uh, started up that group. Is that right? Yes. So you, So you know it real well. I do. And, you know, you're riding through this obstacle, shooting off the back of your horse. And mm-hmm. you're shooting blanks, but you're mm-hmm. shooting balloons, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, you still have to be relatively close in order to... Break that balloon, not not point blank, but you got to be within three feet or so when you're going by. Mm-hmm. So, but then you're also shooting a smaller caliber too, typically a twenty-two. Or no, a, no, they're shooting forty-five. They're shooting forty-five. In fact, now? they prefer forty-fives because they have a more media in the in the shell and the blank. Now those blanks are very dangerous. If I shot a blank here across the table at somebody, they would have injury. So how severe? I don't know. Wow. But uh, those are very powerful blanks that they're shooting. Um, it's a very fun event, but I'm reserved for it myself because every time I've got hurt doing Western reenactments, it's been on a horse. <laughs> so, and, uh, the guns never hurt me, but I've always got you know thrown off a horse or uh, one uh, Department of Natural Resources film that we did for the state of Minnesota. They wanted us to charge through a gate. Well, we charged through the gate on these here rented horses that didn't have their hooves trimmed. Mine tripped and fell, and the gun went off in my holster and blew a hole through my pants and bruised my leg. (laughs) Do you ever worry about shooting your toe when you were doing that fast draw with a paper cut, by the way? That looks like that comes pretty close to you. It does. Um, You know, those blanks are designed for very close-in shooting, and uh, by the time they get uh, three, four feet away, all you're going to feel is pressure. But when we're doing the Old West, the vest is more than for show. The vest is to actually stop some of that powder from getting in and burning. And uh, we use other safety precautions just in case we happen to get uh, a charge from either uh, a sweep. They'll um, occasionally sweep across you while they're shooting at somebody, and you'll get hit by a blank. Uh, But those show blanks are very, very... uh, well designed, just say if if the of course if the loader's done his job, are very well designed not to really hurt you. All right, we we're gonna you know we've got about three minutes before we have a break. But uh, in addition to being a world class restoration mechanic, body man painter all rolled into one, mm-hmm. and the fast draw expert that we've just discussed, mm-hmm. uh, you're also both a musician and a historian of music, particularly the waterless glasses. I understand the history of using glass, for example, as a story in itself. In fact, I'm told that Benjamin Franklin was involved in this endeavor, and, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that to me at some point in our conversations. So, you know, share that story with us. I may have to cut you off because we only got a couple of minutes, but, sure. but warm us up. Well, my first encounter was with the Mozart. I know that Mozart had 10 compositions that he did on glass. And I would be, I've searched the internet for that. 
and I would like to know what his glass arrangement was, because I think that possibly my grandfather copied that arrangement. Um, I know that uh, my grandfather tried a little bit of that um, arrangement in Norway before it came to the United States. But Ben Franklin, uh, really kind of the, ne the next known individual to experiment with the glass bowls, put them on a spindle, and uh, created a beautiful instrument. Uh, it's still not perfect, but it was really nice to listen to. Uh, many, many, many performers in between tried it, but it became kind of a, a stigma because the uh, lead in the glass and the musicians building their sets tended to go mad, and they thought that the glass music created madness. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That seemed to be a very popular idea in Germany, oh, uh, yes. particularly that uh, if you played the music or listened to the music, there was something in the resonant quality mm -hmm. that would do you in. But you're saying it was the lead in the glasses. Lead, possibly the lead in the glasses, yeah. For me, the insanity issue would have been taken care of a long time ago, so <laughs> I wasn't quite worried about it. <laughs> Sandy, is yeah. he really insane? Nah, nah. He's a good guy. He's a good man. He's a good man. You know, when we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little more, Sandy, because okay. you play uh, the glasses as well. You don't have a grandfather who played the glasses. You know, uh, your husband has built these. I mean, you know, that's that to me, looking at him is pretty incredible. But while we're at break, our entire audience can see more about you because we've got a film in our chat room that we're going to show. So, again, if you'd like to know more about Bruce and Sandy's work, visit their site or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. Again, we have a film featuring our guests today during the break. Don't miss that film. It's incredible. You can watch it in our chat room, so if you're not already there, now is the time to get on over there. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Day comes when I find my 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Bruce and Sandy Tweedy about the history of the Wild West Shootout. And more importantly, in this hour, the revival of the harmonica sound. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next in the to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies, and from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great, Facebook, Facebook is a great place for that. They limit the friends page, so please join me on my fan page today. Now, Sandy, we just played some of your musical choice, and I believe this one... Um, is I Can Only Imagine by Michael W. Smith. Why is that so meaningful to you? Well, when you think about it and you hear that song, I mean, I just picture myself standing before Christ, and I just, you know, wow. And, uh, it's, you know, it's brought tears to my eyes a few times, and, you know, I just feel really blessed to, to be able to ha- have that song in my head. So... It's an inspirational piece of music. There's no question about that. Sandy, you play the waterless crystal glasses. Correct. 
and those in the chat room had a chance to see you play that, and I had a chance to see you play it this last uh, week when you were rehearsing here in the studio. Uh-huh. Uh, we were, you know, figuring out how to set it up and how to mic it and everything else. Uh, I'll come back to Bruce in a minute. I know he's had years to practice on this compared to you. And maybe he's even got some memes in the genes to help him. How hard was it for you to learn? It was very difficult because each glass, when you put your hands on it, if you're a little nervous, your hands, you know, like your hands shake. Well, if you can't get your glasses to lay flat, you have no music. And then if you hit them too hard, you can get the um, stem to vibrate. So that'll carry into the glass. So you just got to think calm down (laughs) calm down calm down and then you can start playing the glass but it took a long time to learn and you know your husband to me is uh he's a remarkable human being and i mean that uh he you know um there everything about him that a person would hear from the fast draw to you know looking at him would suggest an aggressive person you know and yet he is a gentleman. He is, I mean, right down to his handshake. There's nothing challenging about him. Yes. What was it like to learn music from your husband? Well, he's very patient. And uh, he'll let me know if I'm not on the right key. It's pretty obvious because I'll be way out. And uh, he just he teaches me. You know, he's very patient and... See, I would think he'd make a perfect teacher because, uh, you know, he does is. he ever lose his temper? Does he ever get no, upset? I've never heard him mad. I've never heard an angry word out of him. I've never heard him say a curse word. He's a very gentle, loving man. Okay, Bruce, I'm going to come back to you now. The phenomena of rubbing a wet finger around the rim of a wine goblet to produce stones is documented back to the Renaissance times. Galileo considered... Uh, the phenomena in his works, uh, the two new sciences. However, most uses of this technique have involved glasses containing water. The Irish musician Richard uh, Pockrick, that we spoke about before we went on the air, is typically credited as the first to play an instrument composed of glass vessels by rubbing his fingers around the rim. Beginning in the 1740s, he performed in London on a set of upright goblets filled with varying amounts of water. His career was cut short by a fire uh, in his room, which killed him and destroyed his apparatus. What is the difference between a water type and the waterless form of glasses, other than the obvious, the inclusion of water, uh, that you play? Well, the... Obvious difference, of course, as you say, is the water. And the note coming out of the glass is going to be a little bit inhibited because of the transfer between the bottom of the bowl and the water. All you get is the sides of the bowl that are producing the note. Uh, in the water, uh, waterless glasses, you get the entire uninhibited note, and it rings very pure and very clear. Also, these glasses are either tuned or perfect tuned crystals uh, within themselves and so therefore they ring very very clear and they volunteer the note very very nicely the uh, glasses that I have took over seven years to find for the two sets that I built we went through hundreds of thousands of glasses literally to find the notes that we have today 
the um, water-filled glasses, of course, you can take any goblet of any size that, you know, happens to fit your hand and put water in. And, and if you're a good musician, have a good ear, you can tune it to the note. And so the and water... you tune it by what? The amount of water that you put in it then? Yes, the volume of water will, will adjust the tune. And you uh -huh. can have every glass in the set the exact same size, just put in more water. We don't have the luxury of the exact same size. And so whatever glass, whenever it plays the note, you know, we take that glass and, and make it fit. And then we have to conform ourselves to be able to play that glass. And we find that almost every finger in motion has to run at a different rate. So learning that is, is quite different. So the skill set needed to play the waterless glass is a little different than the skill set to play the water glasses. Would you say the one uh, necessary to play waterless is more requiring than those with water? Well, you know, I can't say because there's only four sets that we've been able to find in the entire world. And my grandfather built two and I built two. So we don't, we don't have any other examples. So I really have a hard time commenting on that. For Okay. Have you ever, have you ever played glasses that had water in them? You know, I, I never have because I never had the... First off, I um, only saw the glasses once when I was 10 years old. Then I had my auto body mechanical business that I was busy with, and all of a sudden in 1989, I get handed the glasses. And I thought, well, I probably ought to do something with this. Now, and now so that, I only had waterless glasses to play on. Now, that's an interesting story to me. You know, you're handed the glasses, I believe, when your father passed away? Yes, correct. Okay. So they were willed to you. They were. And... Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, because your dad gave them to you, you know, and your dad himself was a scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, and your grandfather, well, in fact, I should ask you that. I mean, your grandfather played for some pretty renowned folks, didn't he? Now, did. Tell us about that, and then I'll come back to this question. Well, my grandfather took the glasses in the early 1900s and toured the East Coast. He played for universities and churches and even the First Baptist Church in downtown New York. Uh, and he was invited to play for both uh, Taft and McKinley, which he did uh, for their, I don't know if that was a presidential inauguration or a reception, what it was. We're still looking for the uh, full information of that. And he was also invited to play for the um, reception for the Lusitania when it came into port. Oh, really? So that was pretty unique. And, uh, yeah, he did play, got quite renowned for his music. And then he went on to play for the beginnings of WOR Radio in New York. And so he started there in 1922, and he was still playing regular shows up until he passed away in February of 1931. And that, I believe, is the last time the glasses were ever performed live on radio. It is. Yes. Until today. Until and you, today. And you and Sandy will be performing in our next uh, half hour, and mm -hmm. I, I guarantee the audience out there, that this is absolutely incredible music. You can well understand once you've seen them played and you've heard them why two presidents of the United States would uh, would call upon the musician to play for him but back to my subject so or, or my original question so you've been given these classes you knew your grandfather played them you've had no instruction none none whatsoever okay so you're going to have to tell me something here now on top of all the other things you do uh, were you already an accomplished musician before you got the glasses? Well, I did like the 12-string guitar. That was one of the reasons for turn, turn, turn. That was done on a 12-string guitar. Um, 
and I kind of fell in love with that. So I started doing the rock and roll '70s music, '60s and '70s on non-twelve-string guitar, which I still play. So did today. you play in a band or something? You know, were you one of these guys up there that I was dancing to, or? Uh, well, uh, in my junior high, senior high years, yes, uh, on occasion. Primarily, my mother and my stepfather played country western music, and so I mean, we had music in our house constantly. Um, I lived with my father, but we. My mother and my father kind of, I guess, buried the hatchet and joined the two families together. My dad actually became the patriarch for both families. And so uh, all of us had Thanksgiving and Christmas and family outings and all that. We were all invited, including my father. Uh, so now you say they buried the hatchet. I mean, that implies, I guess, that they were divorced at some point. They divorced when I was five years old, and I was raised by my father. I see. Continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say something, so no. I was going to allow you the courtesy. Uh, yeah, um, I lived with my father. We regularly went to my mother's uh, place, my stepfather's place. My stepfather was the one I have to credit to getting me interested in the guitar because he played country western music very, very well. He didn't like life on the road, so he declined his offer to go along with the, you know, Carl Perkins and some of those individuals. Oh. So, um, so he was really. He was Quite very, good. Very good, very good, yes. And uh, still is, even at uh, 82 years old. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I always loved to listen to him. And even though I was a rock and roll guitar player, I would always, you know, want Al to play. So you know, did you join in with him and ever, you know, he would, uh, he would have those country evenings with you all on the guitars? And he, he taught me patience. <laughs> I don't know why that man would allow, you know, it's hard for musicians to let somebody else cut in and, and <laughs> play the off notes that they play, you know, trying to learn. But he was very patient with it. And yeah, he, he taught me how to play. Um, you know, I... So here come the glasses. You you've got no, you have knowledge of music. I assume you can read music because you're playing the twelve string, or you no, can't. You no, can't read. I can't, I can't read a lick. So you all right? So you've learned to play, and maybe by ear you've picked out songs. But uh, you know you're not a musician technically. You're a guitar player, huh? Well, at this stage, I'm a guitar player. Um, I, what I happens when the glasses are given to you? Well. The first couple of years, you know, I just kind of looked at the set, and then I figured I better do something. So I spent about three years trying to get the glasses to play continuously. Uh, their condition was quite poor, and they have leather uh, pads underneath. I didn't know why it had leather, leather pads, but I knew that it had something to do with the glass being able to play. And it, I, what I found out is that those pads isolated the glass from the board so that uh, the, glass, uh, the music stayed in the note. Because if the note got down into the board, it would transfer to another glass somewhere in the set and no. give you an off tone. So I spent three years getting that set to play continuously, and then I spent about three years to get me to play continuously. And <laughs> then 1989, I finally eked out Amazing Grace and Greensleeves for the Orville Depot Museum. And uh, that's how it got started. That's a lot of perseverance. Six years uh, yes. without instruction. Um, you're just working out how to play. Now, when you got the glasses, I mean, are they labeled so you know this is an A and B and C? Or Well, they are. They were labeled. Uh, we did have, my mother, fortunately, my mother did put the notes in the glass. 
uh, and that one time that we had them down when I was 10 years old. So the notes still were there. Uh, however, it's in an operatic, uh, I guess an operatic, um, what do they call it, scale. Okay, okay, yeah. And uh, they say it's F sharp to the, to the minor. And whatever that is, that's where they're at. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. I, love I had it. I had a musician come up to me one time. He I guess he wrote for the Spokane Symphony, and uh, he said, "How can you play everything in the fifth? And I just uh, well, I don't know. I just play. And I, um, I'm, I'm I'm sorry if I offended him, but I just told him I said, you know, I just play. I leave it to guys like you to figure out what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw uh, you saw your grandfather actually play when you were ten years old, he no, the... I did not. I oh, saw my mother play. Oh, really? Yeah, she played a little bit. But, um, and that's why I knew that the glasses could be played, and they sounded very, very beautiful. The only thing I had of my grandfather was a very sketchy Memorex tape that they had made off of a 78 record. It had about 98, 90 seconds worth of very, very scratchy, very, very faint music. But you could tell, even on that uh, archaic piece of recording, that they were extremely beautiful. And that was my motivation. I knew that I could play those glasses. And the second motivation for playing them was to get them down and recorded so at least the next musician coming up would know what the crystal musical glasses, especially the waterless, would sound like. Okay, so now you, you said that there are four sets in the world, and you have two. One of these you built. So two, two of them. Two of them. The two that you have, or you to have the, three? The two that are in the studio right now, I built those two you sets. You built both of them? Yeah, I did. And your grandfather's, you still have that somewhere? We do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there, you have three of the four sets? I have four of the four. Oh, you have all four of the four. Okay. Aunt Joan gave us the other set. Okay. How difficult was it to learn to actually build a set? Well, that was quite an adventure. We... Uh, obtained the glass. I had enough glass to start building Sandy's set. And so we started putting the glass in, and then we started finding out, too, that not all the glasses play well together. So you can put a glass in the set and can have a volunteer a perfect note. You put it in the set, and it goes quiet. Really? Yeah. And, and then it buzz. Yeah, and then if you don't do it right, um, you get it mounted correctly for, for the, each individual glass. Uh, it may transfer another note or it may get another bowl to vibrate. So out of the 10 out of 100 that we find that will volunteer a perfect note, we might only get one out of that 10 that we can actually use for music. Uh, so now we were talking earlier, and I think you told me there are 51 glasses in one of the sets. Sandy's set and, has 51. And your set has 55? 55, yes. <laughs> What what's the difference in the number of glasses? Well, my grandfather, I'm sorry, my great grandfather, was able to figure out how to not only put the glasses in scale of major notes and the sharps and minors. Uh, he was able to put the glasses in an arrangement to where he could play chords along with that. So, uh, on our sets, we can play chords. We can play glasses very easily of fours and sixes at a time. So we can play full-on chords, and, uh, and that was the reason for the placement of the glasses. The first two rows are your notes and the major notes and the sharps and flats. 
the next two rows to actually in the partial third row is so that you can get to your chords and uh, also we have some high notes at the low end and we have some low notes at the high end you, you know you're an amazing guy to me and I have to say that because alright you're not a musician you still claim not to be a musician not really no Okay, no. <laughs> and, and you build this and you know I, do you approach everything in your life like that it's just a matter of I can figure it out if I'm given enough time well, yeah, that's part of being raised by rocket scientists, I guess. <laughs> it's not whether you can do it, it's, it's a matter of doing it and figuring out how. Um, yeah, you know, everything in life is, is a challenge. Um, if you're not up for the challenge, then, you know, move on. But the uh, big thing is that I knew that that glass instrument played some beautiful music, and I wanted to play some beautiful music on that glass instrument. Okay, now here's a big one. You know, this is this is a big one. I'm as far as I'm concerned, for everybody listening, many people in the same circumstances that you were in, where they received these glasses and it was an heirloom and it was handed down, and yeah, that's something my grandfather, great grandfather, or somebody had something to do with would have you know put them in a closet or would have called an antique dealer to see what they were worth and and sell them, etc. What do you think is uh, what, what is the ethic that gives rise to fueling that desire to genuinely master an opportunity when it's presented? Well, this is uh, something that's been given to me. I never thought as a rock and roll guitar player that I would be playing classical music on musical glasses. However, you know, with my work with the Fast Draw and the Western shows, I learned that you know, for 15, 20 minutes, the corporate executive uh, was no longer fighting with his wife. He was no longer worried about the corporate bottom line, no, worry, no longer worried about the shareholders. Um, he was just enthralled with what was happening in front of him. And for that few minutes, he had peace. Same with the glasses. We go out and play glasses, and the room will go silent within seconds. Little children will stop what they're doing and come up to the front and sit. And it's just amazing to see that. And then when the blind lady came up to me and said, that's the most beautiful thing I ever heard, and I'm thinking, boy, I had to really, really work to, just to eke out, you know, amazing grace. You know, and here she is totally captivated by that. And, and her world was, there was no pain, nothing in her world for that moment. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask you more about that, but when we come back after this break, we're going to listen to this music the two of you perform. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to stun you with a live performance of two original pieces of music performed on the waterless glasses by our guest. You don't want to miss this one. I guarantee you we have saved the best for this last half hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after paying some bills. Way in is the way out. Change the way you talk to yourself and you change your expectation. Change your expectation and you change your reality. Inner talk does just that. Here's some of what one customer had to say about the power they gained as a result of using inner talk. Lisa wrote To all you skeptics, these subliminal programs actually work. This past Christmas, I gifted myself the following programs, Prosperity, Money Management, and Luck. 
I listen to the prosperity and money management CDs on alternate days on continuous loop at home and while sleeping. The Lux CD I listen to every day at home also on continuous loop. This is what has happened so far. I've had so many opportunities to work overtime. My union representative has told me that I was due two years back wages for shift differential slash premium that was due to me. I did not know I was due this. I have paid off my last debt. I am debt free. I have been consistently entering contests and sweepstakes. I have won a dinner for two at a casino hotel in Atlantic City, won a $100 gift card to The Gap, won $500 cash in a Pennsylvania lottery scratch-off ticket. I seem to get parking spaces when I need them, and I seem to always get good deals on things that I purchase. It does not matter what the item is. Oh, the UPS man just delivered a box of toys. I don't remember what contest I entered, but my nephew will get the toys for his birthday this summer. Please feel free to share my testimony. When you are ready to make changes in your life, inner talk awaits you. Whether you desire to increase prosperity, lose weight, end some addiction, improve your relationships, develop new skill sets, and so forth, Inner Talk is there to serve you. Check out over 300 titles today by going to innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Now, back to the show. And welcome back. If you just joined us, you are in for a treat. We're speaking with Bruce and Sandy Tweedy about the history and revival of the harmonica sound, and particularly the waterless glasses. We will take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guests, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. But first, prepare yourself to be ensconced in some of the most ethereal sound you have ever experienced. Go ahead, Bruce and Sandy. We'll chat about these two pieces after you bathe us in your performance.
you know, that's incredible. That's uh, heavenly. That is like, uh, Ravinder, you know, you and I were chatting during the break. And you you are a musician. I mean, you, you've been trained in music. You know what's involved in music. And, and, you know, you're trying to teach me. And I have friends, I mean, that are really accomplished musicians. I mean, detail accomplished musicians. And you said to me, there's no way someone without musical training could just pick up those things and do it without go ahead no that that is true music isn't isn't easy no i don't call myself a musician i keep trying and i keep trying to learn different things um no it's like uh you know when you talk to Bruce, he talks about eking a tune out as though it's just something kind of casual no. You know, I tend to think there is something divine in this. The compositions they put That's together, it, it's, it's the different sounds. It that, is heavenly music, and it's almost as if, you know, somehow beams something from above, from below. The, the, it's incredible. We have another piece. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it after this next piece.
you know, I have to applaud that. That is just incredible music. Just incredible. Come on over and sit down here again. Let's uh, let's get you back on the air. Uh, those those were two original compositions. You have to put your headset and your microphone on, sir, for me to, you know, for our audience to hear you and get you back here and in, in the game, as they say. Uh, so, Mister Non-Musician, <laughs> how do you how do you write music? Well, it's really interesting. The first song was actually in building Sandy's set. We call it the gift, primarily because I didn't do a thing to write that song. I was building Sandy's set, and as I mentioned, you have to test every glass that goes in the set, and that song almost encompasses all the glasses that are in the set. Really? So it's it's pretty fun to actually play. The um, we call it the gift because that was just our gift. You know, we have the glasses here; they are. And this is your gift. Here's your song. Oh, that is, that's magical. Tell, tell me about the other one. The Romantic Era. Well, Sandy and I had just met. I didn't, I didn't really have a name for the song. But the Orville Depot Museum, the historical society there, the uh, society wanted me to play something, you know, at their next event. And I thought, well, instead of just playing one note at a time or two, I would try chords. I was listening to Dr. Chivago. I'd seen the movie, of course, and listened to the soundtrack. And... I was working on that piece when I met Sandy, so um, we'd, we'd play it back and forth, and then he'd like, "No, try that note. Try that note." You know, we just kind of eked mm-hmm. out, kind of getting close, and then we changed a little bit. Well, that was inspired through Dr. Shivago. Um, anyway, Sandy fell in love with the class, which I don't know which one she loves more, the glass or me, but it worked out to my advantage. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. I think it worked out to your both advantage. Listen, I made a suggestion, and I didn't uh, I didn't ask you about that before we went on the air, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but those are two lovely pieces of music, and my suggestion was that you have them available on your website, that our listening audience could... Uh, you know, maybe for I don't know a dollar or two uh, yeah. download. Did did you do that? We did. Uh, from your advice, thank you very much. Uh, oh, of it, course, it's hard for us being musicians and artists or whatever you know to put a price tag on what we do because we just do it whether we're performing for a thousand or whether we're performing just for the Lord. I know, but you know this. It, that's a profound statement. I'll come back to that one in a minute. It mm-hmm. didn't go over my head. Uh, you know, it's just incredible music, you know, and, and a large part of our audience um, in, are involved in meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, a little personal story here. Uh, I started meditating now over 30 years ago, I don't know, 35 years ago or so. And if you put it in context, <clears throat> that was at a time when meditation and Harry Krishner's at the airport went hand in hand. <laughs> sure. And, you know, I was involved in law enforcement, and, uh, well, you know, there was just a little bit of incompatibility there. Well, one day, I was learning to meditate, and I was off meditating, and, and a friend of mine called the house to see if I'd join him for coffee, and he happened to be chief of police of a department in Utah. And my housekeeper said, no, I'm sorry, he can't be disturbed, he's meditating. Well, he roared about that and for a very long time whenever, you know, we were taking shots at each other and there was somebody else around. I was the meditator and and they found humor in that. Today, of course, 
you know, the art has come full round. We come to understand how important meditation is mm-hmm. and how critical it is to well-being, uh, psychological as well as physiology, or, or you know, or, or physiological. You see a cardiac care physician today, and he'll tell you, meditate, mm-hmm. you know. You, you have to do those kinds of things maybe to handle the information age and the stress and so forth. So where I'm going is... A very large part of our audience is involved in mindfulness training, meditation, and I'm a strong advocate and supporter of that practice. And you always look for music, mm-hmm. music that will just ensconce you, that'll take you away, that's ethereal, that, you know. And, you know, there are some musicians that are accomplished that, that do very well in that genre. But I truthfully, the music that you produce is some of the best meditation music, if not the very best music I've ever heard. Thank period. You. So it, it's music that our I know our audience is going to want, and I know you're also wanting to launch a musical career. Mm-hmm. You know, now you can't do that till you finish the one car of mine you're working <laughs> on. <laughs> All right, but no, seriously. And, and I don't know any other way for you to start a better way than to, to make your music available and, and making it available for free. Well, that isn't going to give you the basis that you need to start from. So what, what I'm going to go there as soon as this show's over and I'm going to be among your first buyers. What is the price? What is it going to cost me? Dollar. Twenty nine. Well, dollar twenty nine for the for the music, but I don't know. Is, what to is say. that a dollar twenty nine for each? <laughs> for each. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So well, I don't I don't know what to say there. You know, there again, we have to make sense of it because we live in a world that requires, you know, we got to buy heat, electricity, have to pay absolutely home, home mortgage and all those absolutely. Things. So so I'm going there and I'm encouraging everyone listening. And I don't know what's happening in my voice, but. <clears throat> I'm encouraging everyone out there that's listening to us or does hear this show, go to brucetweedy.com. brucetweedy.com. And and get this music. I mean, these two pieces are just incredible. And I know there'll be more to come when you show that support. And and I'm going there as soon as this show's over. And I'm getting ours. Is that right, Ravinder? You can nod your head. I know I took your microphone yeah. away from you. <laughs> There's a couple of songs on there that would be really good for the meditation, and the um, the Crystal Phoenix would certainly do that. It's beautiful. Now, that's that a piece of music that you didn't perform today, but it's also on your website. It is. That, right? that and mm-hmm. Higher Ground. Well, the first, the, um, the first eight that are on there, except for the new music, of course, they, they were made for my mother, who was uh, going through a kidney... Uh, transplant is actually the veins had collapsed and she needed new veins for her kidneys and uh, she was looking at you know a 50-50 chance so we put that album together so that she could hear her father's music in concert oh how wonderful because she had well she was 18 months when he died she had never heard the glasses and harmony in concert oh that's so. incredible now Ravinder said something at break and you turn around and said something, and I'm just going to have to bring it up. You know, we don't normally do this kind of thing, but Ravinder said, uh, off the air, divine intervention was guiding you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay? And I just heard you say, whether you're playing for the audience or you're playing for the divine, what do you mean by that? Well, I take, I take pleasure in pleasing 
you know, I'm, I'm, we are Christian, and so Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit are all connected. And when I'm playing music, I can connect. You know, that's my way of being there with the with the heavenly realm for me. And uh, I know some people view things differently, but uh, God confounded our language. He didn't confuse our music. We can all talk the same. And regardless who you are, you know when you hear good music and music from the heart. And so that's the way I play. And whether I'm playing for a thousand or playing for one, it's you know, that's the way it is. I have such admiration for you, my friend. All right, let me ask you this. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, George Frederick Handel, Ludwig von Beethoven, Richard Strauss, and more than a hundred other composers have composed works for the glass harmonica. Oh, wow. Some pieces survived in the repertoire and transcription for more conventional instruments. Since this was discovered during the 1980s, composers have written again for it. Solo chamber music, opera, electronic music, popular music. My question, why don't we hear more about this in the public at large? I mean, you know, you think about music, I do not think about glasses in a symphony orchestra. I do not think about what you just did. Well, the musical history that was made with my great-grandfather was that these are all perfect operatic and orchestra notes. Um, whatever that means for the music world, I'm not quite sure because I'm not an accomplished musician or a learned musician. I do know that he accomplished that by the pure note, purity of the note in this glass. We copied that, and hopefully we have achieved it. But up until now, you know, the glasses really just, if you listen to the water-tuned glasses, you hear a lot of squeaking, a lot of raspy glasses. We've thrown away many glasses just because they were raspy. They had a great note, but you couldn't get the note to volunteer without a little scratch or a rasp or something. Uh, these glasses have to volunteer the note immediately, as soon as you touch the glass. You know, we, you have to be playing. And so you know, that's part of my seven-year search. A lot of musicians don't put that time into their instrument, even though it does sound grand. Uh, it's hard to use for a symphony. You know, audiologists uh, would say there's somewhat disorienting sound that's involved in the production of music the way you do it. And technically, that's largely due to how humans perceive sound. Above 4,000 hertz, we primarily use the volume of the sound to differentiate between each ear, left and right, and thus triangulate or locate the source. Below a thousand hertz, we use the phase difference of the sound waves arriving at our ears to identify left and right for location. The predominant timbre of the harmonican sound, the sound range a thousand to four thousand hertz, which coincides with the sound range where the brain is not quite sure and thus we have difficulty locating it in space. It, we get that ethereal sound. And referencing the source of the sound or the materials and the technique used to produce it. So when you hear this music, this is genuinely a new adventure for your brain. Absolutely. Okay? To listen to the music on tape, um, it requires some really sophisticated electronics or some very great electronics. Uh, we've actually broken down uh, the older the older mechanical style electronics and uh, shattered their box. You know they just, they just can't record it. 
The, uh, Fortunately for you now, this new digital era is such we can capture it. You can capture it. Yes, I'm amazed. Um, the glasses, when you hear them in person, you get them in a larger room, especially one with good acoustics, uh, they will fill the entire room. Regardless where you're at, they'll, they'll fill the house with music. It's just incredible what happens. And uh, yes, they do. They, they've they been noted, even uh, in my grandfather's music, that it fills the entire room. Uh, wh whatever space they happen to be confined in, they, they fill that space with music. I wonder if they don't exude outside that area as well. <laughs> but, you know, listen... Um, how would you say the music produced by via the waterless glasses compares to music performed on what French instruments uh, makers invented in 1952 that's known as the crystal organ, which consists of up to 52 chromatically tuned resonating metal rods that are set into motion by attached glass rods that are rubbed with wet fingers? Mm -hmm. Well, you got to keep in mind here that those bowls are a little inhibited with, with one another. And our notes go straight up. Now, if you put a fan above the top of our glass, a rotating fan like a ceiling fan, mm -hmm. you'll stop the music completely. Really? Yeah. You won't be able to play music. So you get the full effect of the music just going up and, and filling the room, whereas the other on the spindle, they have to go through another glass before they get out to the air. All right, listen, in about a minute and a half that we have left, uh, have you got some gigs coming up? Uh, I mean, how would people that wanted you to perform, to play their music, reach out to you and uh, enable that? Uh, and how can they learn more about you? I mean, uh, give us your contact details and, and tell us all about that. Well, very special thanks to you for helping us finish our website at brucetweedy.com. Uh, they can also Google Bruce Tweedy, and they can go onto YouTube, of course. Uh, they have a few more film on, on YouTube. It's Bruce and Sandy Tweedy. Uh, you can call us at home. With the, number, the number is on the website. They can call us. Uh, right now, we're not represented by anybody uh, as an agent. Yeah, we we do all our bidding, but we've been involved kind of in life. You know, my mother passed away. Sandy had an operation. I had an operation. Then we had to pay the bills, and so this is really our first outcoming in about three and a half, four years. Right. So right. we're just getting restarted. Well, that that's way. that's great. I tell you what, I, uh, I I'm honored that you joined us today and that you allowed us to air your music for the first time uh, on. You know, this this technology since 1931, and, uh, you know, I, I can see only bright things for you. I mean, what you do is just, in my view, incredible. And Andrea, she's the lady that made your website Absolutely. happen, and uh, thank you, Andrea. She's We're all pleased awesome with what job. you did. What a wonderful lady you have there for... She's Your great. Assistant. All right, we're, we're out of here. We're out of time. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show. We'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Do remember to get that music. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. 
Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.